to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hi, podcast listeners. Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Kaya Henderson. I am so excited to welcome her to the pod. And I just tell briefly about yourself, even though I feel like a lot of our listeners know you and you need no introduction, but please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career. Um, Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Rhea. I really appreciate the opportunity and I'm psyched to kind of chop it up with you a little bit this morning. Um, uh, about my career, let's see, I have been in education and education nonprofits um, in the public sector for my entire career, um, almost almost 30 years now, um, which feels like a really long time. Started my career as a teacher in the South Bronx, a middle school Spanish teacher in the South Bronx uh, through Teach for America, and then ended up in a number of leadership positions at Teach for America, at the New Teacher Project, and then ultimately at DC Public Schools, where I led the school district uh, as deputy chancellor and chancellor for close to 10 years, where we were able to successfully turn around what was the lowest performing urban school district in the country. And after leaving that, took some time off, uh, did some consulting work, and uh, now find myself doing two things. One, leading work around community, at Teach for All, which is the international network of about 53 countries that have Teach for organizations. And then I also lead my own consulting practice where I help school systems, state departments of education, nonprofit leaders, philanthropists improve their effectiveness in the work that they're doing. So long, uh, lots of different twists and turns and experiences that have taken me from the domestic to the international, but always in the nonprofit space, always in the service space, um, which I really enjoy. That's amazing, Kaya. And thank you so much for all that you've done for kids, both here in the in the U.S. and around the world. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this challenging time that we are finding ourselves in. And I think the nonprofit sector, like the entire country, is really reeling and trying to make sense of how we move forward. And, you know, for someone like yourself, who's led through such interesting and challenging times, particularly in thinking about you know, being the chancellor of the D.C. public schools, which I'm sure was no mean feat. I'm wondering if you could offer a little bit of perspective around personally as a leader, what does it take to find the, I don't know what you've called the grace and and calm within oneself to lead through chaotic times? I think that you've got to, I think as leaders, we have to tend to ourselves before we can tend to anybody else. And so it's important, I think, for people to have practices and rituals and things that sustain them, that feed them. For me, there are a few things. Um, It's my faith. So I'm a Christian. I enjoy attending church most Sundays, either in person or remotely. And it is messages of faith and comfort, reminding me of who I am in the world, reminding me that I'm not alone, that I actually am called to do something, that I have power to do something. Those faith experiences gird me up. Um, And for some people, it's meditation or yoga or running or whatever it is that 
brings you internal calm and internal peace, I think you have to make sure that you are practicing that self-maintenance ritual regularly. I also think that it's really important for leaders to have a circle of of love is what I would call it. People who are who love you and who care for you, people who are around you, people who will tell the truth to you, people who will call you on your stuff. And you've got to, I mean, you've got to stay close to that circle of love. That love sustains you. In in these times, I have a, a group of, of women. They're my book club. They're my exercise partners. They're my therapy. They are my tribe. And we are in New York and D.C. Um, and, you know, we're on a Zoom call every week, whether it's talking about television shows or the book that we're reading or just general stuff, you know, staying close to the people who care about you and love you and bring you joy, I think is really important. Um, and then I would say the third thing is, is you have to stay close to people, to the people that you serve, right? I think for leaders, staying in touch with the the folks who are like who are most affected by the problems that you're trying to solve helps remind you that you are part of part of a solution, right? I think as leaders, we're taught, we're trained to have a vision for what we want to do in an organization or in a community or what have you. And we're taught to get people invested in that vision and then sort of out towards it. And I actually find the opposite to be true. I find hang out with the people who you are working with and for. Learn about um, your stakeholders and your, I, 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 I can't help but call them community partners, right? And when you spend time with those people, what you're supposed to do emerges naturally. How you're supposed to be emerges naturally. Whether you're leading from the front or from behind or from the side, I think hanging out with people who are affected by the problems that you're passionate about and trying to solve brings you a sort of inner resolve about what it is that you're supposed to do. So I say those three things, whatever your self-care rituals are personally, um, your tribe, your circle of love, and then hanging out with the people that um, you're doing the work with, I think is really important. Kaya, I'm loving this. I can tell that you are a teacher through and through. You're like, okay, I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to summarize for you. you <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, I think one of the things that's so challenging for me personally about this moment is leading through tough times is one thing, but not actually being physically able to be among people and to hang out with people, as you say, has been much harder for me. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you should be saying to your staff uh, who are looking to you to lead them forward in this time when they are also experiencing a lot of, you know, stress around their health, maybe their loved one's health, you know, staying inside, worrying about the economic situation and so forth. And um, how do you really help people to get kind of above their stress and anxiety? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I think you you can't necessarily help people to get above their stress and anxiety. Like we've got to acknowledge that stress and anxiety. It's real, it is present, it is affecting everything that we do all day, every day. Like people are people first before they are staff people or workers or 
leaders. And I think it's really important to attend to your staff's personal needs. Like if they need time to take care of an ailing family member or to figure out what they're going to do with an elderly parent, or, you know, they've got to figure out how to homeschool their, their, their kids. I think it's really important to acknowledge that, to make space for that, to try to support that in any way as possible. I can remember lots of points during my career where I had significant personal issues and I've been blessed to have worked for leaders who have said, take care of that, don't worry about this, right? And freeing me up to take care of my personal life, my personal work. One, I come back to whatever the task at hand is fully engaged because I'm not worried about whatever my personal thing is. It increases my loyalty to the organization because you care about me as a person. And so I care even more about this organization. And I think, uh, so, so yeah, I think you've got to tend to your staff's personal first or create that space. I think second, you know, staff, people need clarity in this time. People need to know, people want to know what the situation is. I'm looking at leadership examples like Angela Merkel in Germany, who just kind of came on TV, was like, here's what it is. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what my, you know, experts are telling me. Here's how we're going to move forward. And people were like, huh. Okay. Or, you know, the best local slash national example is Andrew Cuomo. Every day on TV, let me tell you, I don't know everything, but let me tell you what I do know right now. Let me tell you what we're going to do. I'll be back tomorrow with more information. I think people want clarity. They want to know that somebody's in charge. (laughs) They want that sort of steady hand. And I think that we're seeing pretty interesting leadership examples in terms of how governors are managing this coronavirus crisis versus our national response to it and 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 how local leaders frankly are stepping up whether they're elected officials or everyday people who are kind of filling in who are kind of asserting here's what our neighborhood is going to do we can't control everything but here's what our neighborhood is going to do and so i think staff needs to hear from leaders regularly They need to hear a calming and reassuring voice. Um, Leaders don't need to know what the answers are. And I actually think it's more authentic and real when you say, I don't know, but this is what we can tackle today. So we're going to tackle it today. I think one thing that I haven't heard a lot about, and I'm just wondering if you have some thoughts around this, is when there is disruption, when there is turbulence, there's also an opportunity for evolution and innovation. And I'm wondering if you can either cite some examples in your own life or things that you've thought about. And if you think that there's actually a really interesting opportunity here for us to really innovate and to change uh, for the better as a sector. Absolutely. Of course. Um, I I think if you, so I I think that things happen, uh, what I'm finding is This crisis has hit me in a couple of different phases. So first was sort of paralysis, right? Like, what what do we do? (laughs) Like, I I assume you to be an extrovert, but uh, I'm an extrovert. And so being at home, not being able to touch and see people is really challenging for me. I get my energy from people. And so incredibly challenging, paralyzed, right? Like, what am I supposed to do right now? And literally couldn't do anything for about a week, a week and a half. 
there was, okay, like we've got to, like, I have some work to do. I need to figure out how to stabilize my staff, get things kind of, we've got to be doing something. There are things that we could be doing. And then I feel myself moving into this incredibly generative space, which is, wait a minute, there are opportunities here that we can take advantage of. So for example, I've been thinking a lot about what it will take to reopen schools, right? Whenever that comes, are there things that we could do differently when schools reopen? And I mean, A number one, I think we're already experiencing a tremendous disruption around distance learning, right? We're not gonna go back to school the way it was. There's gonna be a lot of innovation in the ed tech space that is accelerated as a result of this. And I think that is interesting. But even, I mean, I think we get the chance to rethink what does the school year look like? Does it start in September? Which means that kids will be, have been out for like six months. Or do we think about a year round schooling calendar where we set up, you know, just a different schedule and maybe then when, you know, we have another kind of what I'm calling rolling closure, right? Like this thing could happen again. It probably will happen again. How do we set up our school year in such a way that, that we can account for something different? And we've all lamented the like agrarian school year calendar, but nobody has done anything. This is the chance to do something about that. You know, one of my, one of the bees in my bonnet, again, around schools is the Carnegie unit is the 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 unit the the credit that you need uh, to amass for high school graduation carnegie units are about seat time how long were you in a class did you sit in that class and i think with the advent of all of this digital learning we can move to a mastery based assessment for how kids graduate if you can demonstrate mastery it doesn't matter i mean you know this from some college courses where it doesn't matter if you sit for the class if you can pass the exam you get the credit right that's the shift that we have to make for our young people because our young people actually have the opportunity to get information in a myriad of ways not just from sitting in a classroom listening to a teacher why shouldn't we honor all of the ways that they bring together information synthesize think about this work and give them credit for that instead of, did you sit in a class for 30 hours? So, you know, I think I think about the summer, how are we gonna use the summer to transition back into school? I, I would love to think about in New York City, for example, I would love to free up the schools to not have to think about summer school. What if the nonprofit community, the ecosystem that exists here took on summer and decided to create a comprehensive, trauma-informed, culturally responsive, some academic, but really healing summer for New York City kids so that the school system can concentrate on getting itself together for whatever the fall looks like. And like as a community, we work together to, to bring kids back into the fold, right? Like I think there are so many opportunities for innovation. I look at the philanthropic community and funders are saying, okay, wait a minute, should we, one, we do need to give to our grantees just general operating support. And you know how fickle people are about general operating support. They want to give it to you for a while and, and then they don't. But I actually feel like this crisis is making people see we have to maintain these, these organizations have to be there when we reopen. And so I see, I see philanthropists thinking differently about about general operating funds. I see cash transfers moving into people's hands through philanthropy. Like I feel like there is a lot of 
of opportunity for us to think different, think different about how you service your clients. There are training programs that you can take online. There's teletherapy. There are lots of different ways, I think, enabled by technology that we can rethink how we deliver our services in the nonprofit sector that, you know, once you finish being paralyzed, <laughs> once you get your staff together, I think there's an opportunity to be incredibly generative and innovative. And I think the world is going to be open to these new new ways of doing and being. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, the thing that has been running through my mind in the last couple of weeks is, you know, this term breakdown, breakthrough, right? So mm-hmm. especially, you know, having worked in education, it, it's sort of like the last bastion of uh, like a stalwart holdout against innovation. It's really hard to get things moving differently. And yet in like 24 hours, teachers were being asked to set up remote learning classrooms. And so it, it this like seismic shift, I think, has been really interesting. And, and to your point, I think hopefully we'll jumpstart a lot of new practices and new innovations in education. Let's talk a little bit about, so we talked about the staff. I'm also wondering if you could speak a little bit to your thoughts, and and we certainly touched on it around systems change, right? So if we're leaders in our nonprofit world, we're leaders to our staff, we're, you know, taking care of our stakeholders and our clients, but we, we actually do really want to be part of this conversation around systems change and kind of big big structural changes, like how might folks do that? How might they engage with various stakeholders to start to be in that conversation and push um, push for some change? Well, I mean, I think we, we always talk about systems like they are these, I don't know, big, giant things, entities or whatever. Systems are people, right? Systems are complex organizations of people. And I think, you know, a school system is, at least in D.C. public schools, it was 11,000 people organized in a particular way, held together by a set of rules and policies, executing against a common vision, ideally. And I think that, one, you've got to understand whatever system it is that you're trying to change. And then I think when you have a deep understanding of that system, then there are things, there are issues that pop up. So there are policies, for example, that that make systems dysfunctional. And when you get to understand what some of those policies are, then you have a real lever for change, right? You can change policies. Policies are not fixed. They're quite flexible, in fact. Um, How do you change policies? Through relationships, right? Like whether it's relationships with legislators or relationships with system leaders, like my point here is you've got to understand what the problem is, and then you've got to find the right people who can help you fix the problem. And we talk about systems like like they are these inanimate objects, but they're not. They're people. So how are you building relationships with people to understand what their jobs are so that you can figure out where their jobs might be different or how their jobs might be better? How are you getting to know the people who make policy and connecting them to the people who live through these policies, right? I mean, I I serve on the board of Robinhood and and one of the things that I've watched us do is really disentangle some of the policies around paying nonprofits who uh, provide services 
on behalf of the city, right? They're out here serving our folks and the city is not paying these folks. And the philanthropic sector is having to backfill because the city has a backlog of, of payments that it owes. And so I watched our director of policy really get in and understand what this issue was and by talking to the people most affected by the problems and then going to build relationships with city council people, with the mayor to create different policy to get people paid, right? So how are you, if you want to do systems change, how are you thinking about relationships? How do you think about getting to know people and understand people and influencing people to do the things that you need them to do? I think systems change ultimately is about people. Um, and I think we forget that. So I'm going to go off script a little bit here, but it seems to me that when we talk about relationships, it's predicated on this um, foundation of trust. And you've always, you know, a little bit of a, a weird stalker, but you, you clearly have the reputation of, of operating from a high integrity, high trust place. And I'm wondering if you could break down for us, for you personally, how do you, how do you establish and demonstrate trust in a relationship that, you know, obviously, I'm sure in some cases can be contentious and can be controversial and can be high stakes. Empathy is really, first of all, I like people. I like, I I am genuinely interested in people. I want to know what your story is. I want to know who you are. I see infinite potential in people and I am always trying to figure out how, you know, how is it that, uh, how is it that we do something together, right? And so I think that there is a, this kind of authenticity, this authentic interest in people is a precursor to building good relationships. Like people know when you are trying to build a relationship because you want a transaction to happen, right? It's different when, you're seeking to understand who I am because we have some commonalities or because you're really interested in me or you're interested in in helping to change something for me. And so it starts with empathy. It starts with seeing the humanity in other people and seeking to connect with that. Uh, one of the things that I would tell myself all the time when I was chancellor of DC Public Schools is you know, when a parent or a community member is screaming at you, they're not screaming at Kai Henderson personally. I didn't do it. (laughs) But, But the system, air quotes, right, this institution um, has aggrieved them in some way. And so I've got to cut through the anger and find out what's going on, what, like, you know, and, and if it's a reasonable grievance, I have to acknowledge that, right? Nope, you're not crazy. That was not okay. I didn't do it, but here's how we're going to try to figure it out together. And I think people want to be acknowledged in their feelings because what they've experienced is real. Uh, and and far too often as leaders in our quest to kind of clean it up, we want to say, okay, okay, that was then, but here's what we're doing now. No, like you got to tell the truth and have some reconciliation about the the bad that has happened, right? Whether you caused it or not, you've got to create space for that. And then I think, you know, you've got to seek to partner with people. You can't save anybody. People working together solve big problems. And so I think you have to invite people into partnership with you to solve the problems. I would say all the time, these are not my schools. These are our schools. And so together we're going to figure out how to 
turn this district around. And so for every big decision that we made, we first took it to the people, said, look, what should we be focusing on? What are your hopes and dreams for DC public school kids? Okay, that's what we're gonna follow as our blueprint. How do you wanna do this? What do you think we should do about teacher evaluation? What do you think that we should do about curriculum? What do you think we should do about family engagement? And I listen to people, I think, um, I come from a community like the community that I served in DC. And so I fundamentally see assets in, in even when other people don't. Um, and so I start from a, a place of, of positivity and how can we, like we got a problem, but how do we figure this out together? And I think inviting people into that kind of partnership is the thing that builds trust. So would you say that that is your particular superhero power? Yeah, I, I think I think I got a few superpowers. Um, one of one of them is like deep relationship. I like I like building relationships. I love people. I got a lot of people that I hold close. Um, yeah, I think that's one of my superpowers. I think one of my superpowers is creativity. I having not come through the traditional channels either for leadership or for for chancellorship for school district leadership or nonprofit leadership. I mean, I've had a very untraditional leadership trajectory, cutting my teeth in very like scrappy startup organizations. And so I'm not constrained, I think. I mean, I see obstacles as things to like overcome, but I don't see them as permanent barriers. And I'm willing to think completely out the box. I got a little streak of crazy that is helpful. Um, I would say all the time, my job is to come up with the cockamamie ideas. My staff's job is to figure out how we actually implement the cockamamie ideas. Um, but I, I feel like creativity is one of my uh, superpowers. As well. You know, I really believe that people who are leading and in service have been called to it from a very early age. And I'm just wondering if you could like think back to like little little baby girl, Kaya Henderson, back in the day when you really felt you identified with a justice or like there was a sense of understanding that you were called to right wrongs and something bigger, some bigger purpose was there for you. Yeah, I mean, I come from a family of maybe what I would call justice fighters. Um, my mom was an educator. She was a public school teacher, principal, central office person. I thought she was crazy because I watched her at great personal sacrifice give time, money, personal sanity to her kids and her community. And I thought, oh, these educators are crazy. I would never want to do that. Here I am. I was raised also by a grandmother who who was really, I mean, from being active, being a union shop steward, she was a, she worked at a nursing home as a nurse's aide and she kind of organized and, and became the union shop steward to integrating the, the senior citizen center in the town that we lived in to being on the board of the tenants association. Like I grew up going to tenants meetings and union meetings and teacher meetings and meetings, meetings, meetings. And so, and then church where in Sunday school, we were taught to whom much is given, much is required, right? Like I feel like I've had an, an inculcation of social responsibility that it wasn't just okay for us to do well, that it was important for us to bring 
our families and our communities along with us and to fight for people who couldn't fight for themselves. That is just, I like was bathed in that throughout my my like upbringing. And so, you know, little baby girl Kaya was the president of the class in the third grade and the president of her senior class in high school. And, you know, little baby girl Kaya was a teenage Kaya was the head of the youth group. And, you know, I've always... I've gravitated towards leadership roles or they've gravitated towards me. Like, I'm not sure. (laughs) I've been tapped to lead in times when I, you know, hadn't planned on it. Um, I mean, I didn't plan on being chancellor of DC public schools at all. And maybe said no 50 times before I finally said yes. I think that that, uh, one, I think it's important to be a humble leader, a servant leader. I think sometimes people are, they see the the glitter, but they don't see the grind and leadership is hard. But I, I fundamentally think that the, the family that I landed in, the environment that they raised me in, I didn't really have much choice. You were born for a purpose and you're fulfilling that purpose. So as we um, wrap up, any last thoughts or insights that you could offer to the nonprofit community? I mean, I think there are so many people out there doing such extraordinary work and, you know, challenging at the best of times and certainly now even more so. And I'm just wondering, could you offer, you know, any, any thoughts, any insights, any inspiration as we move forward in this uh, time of uncertainty, but also great opportunity. I'll share. I was watching a sermon from, from the church that I attend and the pastor was talking about the sort of warrior inside of us that that when things are calm right like the warrior does like the warrior comes out when it's time for war right and you know you've heard the thing about like you know you don't understand how strong a tea bag is until you put it in boiling water right like we are we are nonprofit leaders doing really difficult work under the best of circumstances, but it's in times like these that like the warrior spirit within us gets the chance to like rise and shine and do the amazing things. And I think sometimes we got to remind ourselves of the things that we've overcome in the past, the things that looked impossible, but we prevailed, right? Like this is another boiling water moment and we have the opportunity to show our strength. We have the opportunity to innovate. We have the opportunity to break and bust down systems. We have the opportunity to call on the relationships that we've built and to partner with people to do something very different. And so I think once you get over your breakdown, embracing that breakthrough and calling up the things in you that have gotten you this far, I think are the things that, um, that make nonprofit leaders, the warriors that we are. Oh, such a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for being here, Kaya. We really appreciate it and stay safe and all the best to you. Thanks so much. Thank you.